today, we're seeing a return of medical McCarthyism, where a group of physicians, a small group, probably more or less around 500 in all of America with 900,000 physicians, millions of nurses, and millions of scientists, have decided that maybe there's something about how the COVID paradigm and the COVID protocols have been implemented. Maybe, even though these are all orthodox doctors, pro-vaccine doctors, maybe there is something that can be done to improve the outcome of the patient. For example, how about treating them early? After all, these doctors are used to getting people in their rooms and offices and emergency rooms with a gunshot wound or a stroke, heart attack, and helping them. But now they're told, no, you're not to do anything. Send the patient home, maybe with some aspirin, and wait till they get so sick that they have to go to the emergency room and frequently be intubated, given the one drug that was recommended, remdesivir, as if it were safe and effective. That's what we were told. And some of the doctors began to say, this, is, this doesn't make any sense. How can I stand by when I know that there's symptoms I can do something about? with FDA-approved off-label drugs. But they were told, stand down. And if you don't, the state medical boards are going to come in and investigate you, and you know what that means. In these fishing expeditions, they'll find some reason to take away your board certification or indeed your license. One of the individuals you're about to hear is Dr. Pierre Corey. He is an extraordinarily brave human being because he was at the very beginning all pro-orthodoxy, but he found something was amiss. And he believed there should be a legitimate, open, honest, civil discussion. Make it vigorous, you know, challenge, but at least allow different voices in. And by the way, these are all Orthodox doctors. That wasn't the case. And I remember playing for this audience a press conference. I don't know how many were there. I'm guessing 10, 12, 15 people. They were in their uh, Dr. Coates in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. And the question was, they were saying that there were early treatments that could save lives. The press hit them hard. Suddenly, every talk show was attacking them. Well, hold on a second. Are these people board certified? Are they specialists? Have they published in the peer journal? Do they have long, good quality medical practice? Is there any controversy in their background? The answer was no, 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 no. These are people who sat at your table, who counseled major hospitals and departments of hospitals and medical school professors and who counseled the World Health Organization, the FDA, sat on panels. These are people from your group. And instead of having open and honest debate, you're attacking them? That's never happened before in American history. And now you want them erased, censored? Why? This is an overreaction, but it was a universal overreaction, not just here, but all across the world. Let's now hear from that courageous person. And by the way, you have a lot of people now who understand the sacrifice you and the others made. So welcome to our program. Thanks, Gary. I'm glad to be here. Would you first give us some of your own background and your own own insight, because you know more about yourself than any of us would, and what makes you uniquely qualified to be able to help people 
and then take it from there to the protocols you began to use and other doctors who were influenced by you, you by them, began to use to see that there was a, a collective input to show that, wow, here we've got 25, 30 FDA-approved drugs and some supplements, and we're able to stop this from going forward or help people if it's early on uh, treatment. Take us on that journey now, please. Yeah, sure. So, you know, prior to COVID, um, I'd had a career in academic medicine. I was, um, as COVID uh, came to us, I was an associate professor at the University of uh, Wisconsin. I was the chief of the critical care service there, and I was the medical director of their main uh, medical surgical ICU. My training is in, um, I have three boards in internal medicine, pulmonary medicine, which is lung diseases, as well as ICU medicine. Uh, or critical care medicine. And, um, you know, throughout my career, um, I've published, I've taught, um, I was the senior editor of a textbook, which is now in its uh, second edition and translated into seven languages on, on a subspecialty within my field that I was one of the world pioneers on. So um, I was quite well known nationally, if not internationally, uh, within my specialty for work and research that I had done. Uh, mostly education um, of that research. I was, uh, I consider myself an educator. Now, when COVID uh, hit, you have to understand, I'm, I'm, I would argue someone, I was 50 years old, I would say that's somewhat at the peak of your career. Um, I, I mean, I was fully enmeshed in research and, and reading and really up to date. And as a lung and ICU doctor, uh, when this unfolded, all you saw were images of ICUs filling around the world, you know, the, the, the surges in Lombardy and Seattle and New York. And I was completely, I don't know if inspired or compelled or uh, driven uh, to figure this disease out. Um, I, all I want to do is read about it, learn as much as I could, figure out how to treat it, not only for patients, but even myself. I knew that on the front lines, I, you know, at the beginnings, I thought I, I was at, at grave risk. Um, and I wanted to figure out how to treat it. And what happened was myself and a close group of colleagues led by, uh, my, you know, my mentor and friend, uh, Dr. Paul Merrick, um, you know, internationally known doctor. He's actually the second highest published physician in our specialty in its history. Um, a good friend of mine. He brought us together and we formed a group called the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. And our sole mission at the beginning and still was to, you know, come up with as effective a treatment protocol as possible uh, to treat this disease. And, you know, initially as ICU doctors, we completely focused and we developed a hospital treatment protocol because you have to recall at the beginning of COVID, the national response uh, and even locally at my university was really a focus on what's called supportive care only. Um, and what that means is you essentially, you're just providing fluids, maybe some fever reducers, food, oxygen as needed, but there was no specific treatments counteracting the pathology. And the general stance was one of just extreme conservatism that, you know, you can't try anything, you can't treat anything unless we have some large double-blind randomized controlled trial to show that it works. And it was pretty absurd because you could see the clinical experiences on the ground, the collaborations I had. I, I have trainees all over the country. All of my friends run ICUs in New York City. I was on the phone with them every day. And we quickly figured out what was effective in the hospital phase. And then research started to inform uh, our knowledge. And so we did an early, you know, a hospital treatment protocol. 
And we did that at a time when there was really no hospital treatment protocol. Um, no one could decide on what to do. Uh, we knew what was working and we put it out there. And that, that gave us some attention because obviously uh, patients want to be treated. They don't want to die of this disease. They want to get better. And, and I just want to fast forward. You know, our second sort of act was we started, uh, as data started coming out around early treatment, um, we were really impressed with the ivermectin data. The hydroxychloroquine data, initially, we were as confused as the rest of the world. I will tell you just because I, I will tell you, as going into COVID, Gary, um, you know, you, you, in your introduction, you talked about orthodox physicians. So I was trained in the system. Um, I always believe that the science that I was taught and the journals that I read were the apogee of the best and highest quality science that had risen to the top. And if it wasn't in those journals, like you talked about alternative medicine, my view of alternative medicine is what you get indoctrinated with, which is that it's clearly substandard. It's clearly not the best science. And th that was my view before COVID. I can fast forward really quickly to my view now, which is it, it's been completely, I'm transformed as a physician. What I've learned over this journey is what's taught and what appears in high impact medical journals is not only completely curated, but it's controlled by the pharmaceutical industry. Um, I have since learned of so many therapies and approaches to disease and treatment that have been ignored or even dismissed and attacked by system doctors and, and the system itself that are highly valuable and that have tons of science and physiology to support it. And, and that journey began as we went into early treatment. We started to see so many things that were working, so many compounds that were effective, and yet ignored, ignored, ignored. And, and I'll just finish my first sort of answer by saying that when we came out in public and tried to bring attention to ivermectin, which was helped by a, a testimony I gave in, in the Senate, which uh, the video of which went kind of viral and it, it brought people started asking questions. So here's this doctor talking about ivermectin. They started to look into it. Gary, at that time, I thought our work, our research, our protocols, I really thought, I didn't think we would be celebrated, but I just thought we would possibly trigger a positive move towards a national effective protocol using widely available safe repurposed drugs. And Gary, I had a lot to learn. <laughs> I, I didn't know that that when we came out and, and here is our crime, and this is how I see it now, you know, our crime against the system is we actually had the gall, the stupidity, the naivete to try to promote a generic off-label medicine as a highly effective treatment for COVID. That put myself and our group directly into a decades-long war on repurposed generic drugs. I didn't know how my life was going to change after that. I literally went into it bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, enthusiastic, inspired, really thinking that we could help people. And what happened to our careers and lives over the, these last two years uh, w would have been unimaginable to me at, at that time. That, that's how na naive I am. Uh, now, as I look back on the last two years, I think that everything that's happened to me could have been easily predicted, and my plight and my journey is no different than many, many, many other doctors over the many decades. You, you've studied this issue for a long time in the system and how it behaves to, to those who don't comport to this highly cur curated science that's presented to society. And um, 
I, I didn't know I was stepping into that area. And so it's, 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 it's been quite the journey. I appreciate that introduction, at least for the skeptics and critics who monitor every single interview that you do. You're allowing them to know that you are open now. You're seeing a broader perspective on what really works versus what we're told to do. You're questioning the authorities that maybe you wouldn't have at the same level historically, and you had success, and they haven't. And the media continues to support protocols that don't work, actually harm people, and you're supporting along with others, and you're growing. Your group went from, what, a couple dozen people to thousands? Well, actually, the group itself, I mean, it's five doctors that started it. We've had, we've taken on some advisors from even around the world because we've just gotten collaboration with some just great researchers who've helped us build our protocols even better. Uh, so the core group of physicians is less than 10, and our organization is probably 20 to 25 now. But um, our reach has, it, it, it's, that, that's, you know, I'd like to talk about a positive because it's so, COVID experience and the journey has been really quite negative mostly, but um, I have to recognize that our protocols have been disseminated truly around the world. Uh, a good portion of this country uh, followed our protocols. Um, and, you know, we, I, I really do believe those protocols led to uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives saved. I mean, we have anecdotes and reports from doctors and leaders from uh, really across the world. And we've seen numerous cities and countries employ similar early treatment protocols with just incredible impacts. And, and so I'm proud of our, our, our role in that. We were not the only ones uh, to call attention to early treatment or repurpose drugs. Um, but we, we, you know, we organized ourselves. We had good support with like our, our website and, and just sort of trying to disseminate. Because what we were trying to do, what's interesting, Gary, is when we started, everything that we wrote and we did, we had the doctor as our audience. And that's just who I'm used to talking to and teaching and sharing and debating and disseminating information to. But I would say within months of the radio silence and the attacks of what we were doing, we realized that you... We, we couldn't teach the system anything. The system is there to teach us, right? And so like we were already on the outside and and I think, you know, we started to see that we were getting a lot of traction with really uh, citizens, the greater public um, and, and lots of allied, you know, non-physicians, deeply researched, you know, um, data analysts, you know, from all sorts of professions uh, saw that our data, our science, what we were presenting was sound and rational and supported. And and so we really sort of, I think, gained traction disseminating. This. So I, I would say like my pupils, instead of physicians, became really the public. And, and, and that is really what our organization does, is we consider ourselves a medical education organization. And we certainly have a considerable following uh, of healthcare providers, but I, I would say it's the greater public uh, that has, has profited the most. Just to emphasize one of the things you mentioned, you're concerned when you're working with people that there's a good result. After all, let us not confuse a person's efforts, sincere or not, with the outcome. If you're sincere, but your outcome is always negative, then maybe someone should change the effort. And that's not what we've seen with Fauci and, and company. Gary, can I say something about that? Because you know, I just said like our mission as an organization is a medical education organization. 
but I would say almost like not like a tagline or a motto, but one of our ethos is we evolve with the data. You know, we, we actually made so many changes to our protocol. So as new evidence came out, new options came out for treatment that were highly effective and safe, we would add, we made combinations, we changed dosing. Um, we even reversed a little bit of things that we had emphasized overly in the beginning. But we always had a, had a commitment to, uh, you know, evolving not only with data, but with clinical experience and, and, and as you said, clinical results. And so, um, but we didn't see that same process occurring. You know, what we were doing was is what I thought everyone would want to do, which is you want to you act on the most up-to-date science using a risk-benefit analysis, a sound reason, rationale, and, and clinical experience as you can. And we did that naturally, but that was, turned out that wasn't so natural. What we did, Richard Gale and myself, we decided to take your protocol at the very beginning. And we took, for example, vitamin C, uh, zinc, uh, uh, quercetin, magnesium, and even some herbs uh, like astragalus. And we went to the Library of Medicine, National Library of Medicine, and we looked for only peer-reviewed literature. And we found thousands, literally thousands of studies on these showing their antiviral, anti-inflammatory responses from quality institutions. And yet at the one hand, we're told, don't take any of this stuff. It's not going to help you. It's just garbage. The vitamin is just going to create expensive urine. That was their statement. And yet we're saying, hold on a second. There are thousands of studies in the library medicine peer-reviewed literature showing, yes, they will work, and especially in combination. So I just want to know that we once we saw that what you were advocating was based upon independent real science, then we thought, okay, good. They're on the right trail here. Now, tell us the good news, because we have people all over the world right now watching and listening, and they want to know if there's four conditions. They have had natural immunity because they were naturally infected, but chose not to get vaccinated. But they could still get you know, a long COVID, as some have. What can help them? What can help a person that was vaccinated multiple times, some four times, and including children, and now they're putting it into the annual schedule, mandatory vaccines, when there's no science supporting that. But what happens if they've been vaccinated and don't have any side effects up till now? And that's been one of the juggernauts that we're faced with. People say, well, you know, 85% of the people are just fine, whatever that figure means. Uh, and I'm thinking, okay, for now. But what happens a year, two, three, or four from now when we know from many other studies that not everyone has the same adverse effect? How many vaccines do they have? What's the state of their immune system? Do they have other comorbidities? So that's important that we also try to encourage people who've been vaccinated. Good for them. I don't tell people to vaccinate or not. I just say, do your homework. But they haven't. They've trusted their homework as the New York Times or, or the CDC or Anthony Fauci. So what can we do to help them to lessen the likelihood they would have an adverse effect? And then the enormous amount of people who were vaccinated and had adverse effects, including many doctors and nurses, what can we do to lessen the impact of those negative effects to help them? Where right now, almost everybody that we're talking with who've been vaccine damaged, the hospitals deny it, the doctors and nurses deny it. They don't understand what caused it. They're just saying, well, uh, 
unknown etiology of unknown origin? Well, no. And then we're seeing people uh, who were vaccinated, who were injured, and then also had natural immunity to begin with, but got vaccinated on top of their natural immunity because they were told, well, natural immunity doesn't work. It doesn't mean anything. So you better get vaccinated on top of that. And what about those people that had autoimmune conditions to begin with that I was concerned about? Clear at the beginning, I said, if you have an autoimmune condition, your doctor may not think that the vaccine is the best approach to helping your condition because now you're going to stimulate another five-alarm fire on top of a five-alarm fire. And the older you are, the weaker you're going to become, and you could succumb to this. But none of that was considered. So with that in mind, for those different conditions, please tell us, some of the positive outcomes with the protocols, and please go through the protocols with us so we can better understand it. The form is yours. Yeah, no. So, Gary, so, you know, I, we kind of went over, you know, my, my career a little bit, our early efforts as an organization. And so your questions, right, you had kind of a four-part question, which I, I'm going to try to address sequentially. But, um, you know, where are we now? So uh, I would, I, I just want to finish that early part. We are totally confident stand by our early treatment protocol, our hospital protocol. And what has happened is obviously after that first year, year and a half, you know, we started to see this long haul syndrome develop. And then with the vaccine rollout, you know, the vaccine injury syndromes and complications. And, you know, what we've done, I would say in the last six to eight months, and me and my private practice, um, I have a, a, a telemedicine practice, uh, which is solely focused on not only treating acute COVID, but largely on the treatment of long haulers and vaccine injured. And then, so that's my private practice. And then uh, my nonprofit, right, flccc.net, you know, there's where we do the research and we put together protocols and guides for things that we have found work either based on the science or clinical experience and really the totality of the evidence. So this is a topic area that I'm, I've been immersed with, you know, and so we, we, we kind of just, we're, we're, here's what I will say. I, we keep seeing voids in the system that need to be filled. There's no good guidance on long haul. There's no approved treatments. And then you bring up the vaccine injury, which is um, truly, without overstating, a dystopian nightmare, what, what's happening with the system. And I, and I just want to say a couple of words, because you touch on some of the issues we are about how they're being, you know, the vaccine injury being ignored and suppressed. But, you know, what I see happen in COVID, right? So we talked about ivermectin and the war that began on it. And that war used something called disinformation, which is a whole field um, that industry employs to counter science that is inconvenient to their interest. There was a war on hydroxychloroquine. There was a war on ivermectin. Um, there was a, I would, I would say not a war, but a huge promotional campaign for the vaccines. They used all the same tactics, using high-impact medical journals, media, social media, even government. Now we are learning about the agencies that controlled literally social media with censorship and propaganda. And so what has that led us to is the end results of a couple of years of, I would say, unparalleled and unprecedented propaganda and censorship. So it's an information war. And what people have suffered immensely through this, none more so than the vaccine injured. But going back to your question, so with this focus now, because this has created a catastrophe, and I also want to start one thing at the beginning. In, in, in your question, you mentioned, Gary, that you don't tell people to get vaccinated or not, and I think that's reasonable. 
exhort them to do their own research, make their own decisions. Um, I will go for, I, I have a different approach. Um, at this point, from where I sit, immersing myself in COVID, COVID data, vaccine data, vaccine injuries, um, my conclusion, I'm giving you my professional opinion, is not only is the campaign must stop, but patients in order to protect their health at all costs need to avoid any further COVID mRNA vaccination, period. There, like you said, you even said that there is no science to support it. In fact, it is not even close. The, the, the totality of the data and evidence that is available before us shows us not only that the vaccines are ineffective, they have a negative effect, efficacy, you're more likely to get the disease, this whole narrative of the preventing hospitalization deaths is thoroughly debunked. It does not do that. And they are the most toxic and lethal medical intervention in the history of medicine that I can see. And they, this is a global scale that they've been deployed. All right. So those two issues of vaccine injury and long haul, because long haul is another epidemic, right? And you're right. It can happen in the unvaccinated. It can happen in the vaccinated. And so your first question was um, around sort of natural immunity and vaccination. So that one's fairly simple. Um, again, I have to, I just have to be negative because all I've seen is just immense corruption uh, that was really uh, geared toward targeting, promoting the vaccination campaign and suppressing early treatment options. And these, these are time-honored incentives, right? I mean, these are companies, we, we literally have the pharmaceutical industry running this show. They run this show through agencies which have been captured, documented over decades, that they literally run those health agencies. And all of our policies have admitted, have come out, and the, the cruxes of them are vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate. They created a $100 billion vaccine industry through this pandemic and suppress, destroy, and distort early treatment options um, because you want to preserve the markets for these farces like Molnupiravir and Paxlovid. Okay. In those campaigns with those objectives, they literally did something I didn't think was possible. Overnight, they convinced nearly the advanced, all the world's advanced health economies to ignore natural immunity. Somehow we were to believe that having just recovered from COVID, that immunity was suboptimal and needed to be augmented by a vaccine. There's no science or logic to support that. And in fact, the evidence quickly came out that the naturally immune were far better protected and much safer than those vaccinated. And, and so those with natural immunity, that's the easy one. Do not get vaccinated. Um, there's no rationale for that. How much protection is natural immunity going to afford you? Well, I will just summarize the data to say this. The reinfection, so your risk of reinfection is greatly reduced. It's not zero. Certainly many people still get reinfected. But the overall evidence shows that with each subsequent reinfection, it's generally milder. And now many people who've had it two or three times, oftentimes their last episode was like kind of a mild cold. I mean, for many people, and natural immunity is abundant throughout society. Um, and so natural immunity is something I think you should be confident in. Certainly there's other things like you talked about with your partner, things that you can do to augment, optimize your immune system, um, you know, to, to weather it even better. Um, so there are approaches to just kind of protect, you know, optimize your immune system and rely on your natural immunity. So that's an easy one. Um, I think the second part of your question, Gary, was on uh, perhaps long haul, was it? Or um, on long haul. And so, yeah. And so 
long haul syndrome and post vaccination syndrome. I'll kind of I'll address both together because there's a lot of overlap. Um, our research on what underlies these syndromes is really centered around the spike protein as a highly pathogenic or pathogenic is something that causes illness or symptoms or disease, right? The, talk, the, the spike protein is a pathogen. It literally disturbs the body and it triggers numerous mechanistic pathologic processes from activation of macrophages with hyperinflammation. It generates autoimmunity. The antibodies to the spike uh, cross-react with our own tissues. It causes all sorts of disturbances in our coagulation system. And we're seeing this phenomenon called microclotting. It's activating mast cells, which generate uh, sort of allergic reactions. But mast cells can be in a lot of tissues and they can cause myriad symptoms when activated. We see reactivation of latent viruses. We see mitochondrial dysfunction. Mitochondria are the energy producing units of each cell. You know, each cell has to make energy in, in order to function properly. And we're seeing diseased mitochondria. And so we see a lot of symptoms related to that. And then we also see some nitric oxide pathways. So I don't want to get too geeky, but what we started with is we amassed all of the science. Our most recent manual sort of researching these two syndromes we're well over 400 references. Now, most of the references are taken from in vitro, basic science, immunology, uh, in second and third tier journals, because something you had mentioned too, I mean, the, the, the propaganda and censorship around these vaccines, I mean, you, you in the high impact journals, you really, there is no publication, with few exceptions, there's almost no publications really describing the scope and the scale of, of the damages of this vaccine. They're generally positive vaccine studies. Um, there's almost no research on how to treat or approach or understand spike protein-induced disease, which is kind of how I summarize those two conditions. And so we've really had to like catch as catch can and, and just look wherever we could for scientists, you know, doing, you know, conflict of interest free objective investigations into the effects of this spike protein. And so we've kind of tried to amass that. And with the knowledge of those mechanisms, we have sought uh, medicines or treatments whose mechanisms of action counteract or can control those processes. And so we have, you know, dozens of possible therapies. Now, none of these are proven, right? I'm using my air quotes there. Um, I don't know probably for decades if you'll ever get proven. And I'll tell you, my guess, knowing what I know now, is that the first proven therapy for either of these two syndromes, I will guarantee you, will be an on-patent pharmaceutical product. Um, and you'll see another war on any other alternative, not alternative, I would say repurposed or generic treatments. I would say our protocols are all repurposed generic available treatments. Um, and so know, knowing those mechanisms and how do we approach them. So in my practice now, I've been in practice for almost a year. Uh, myself and my partner, we manage well over 400 patients with these two conditions. Um, and let me just say at the outset, uh, they are extremely ill, the patients who come to me. Most of them are suffering some sort of disability, uh, meaning their prior functioning and lives that they were leading, they can no longer lead. Some have mild to moderate deficits in functioning, and many are almost completely disabled, if not completely disabled, 
cannot leave their house. And I cannot tell you the proportion of my practice of patients that I see under the age of 50, educated, careers, kids, ate healthy, exercised, who now can't leave their house because of the deleterious effects of, of, of the spike protein, whether you got it from the vaccine or the long haul uh, or, or from the natural infection. I will tell you on average, my vaccine injured are far sicker than my long haulers. And the other thing is long haulers, I've noticed they do respond better to the passage of time. I, I definitely see more improvements over time with long haulers, both with and without treatment. The vaccine injured are, I don't see, they definitely will improve slightly over time. And the body's a, a beautiful and, and complex and amazing, uh, you know, system. Um, and it can heal itself. Um, but the vaccine injured are, are, I would say, categorically more difficult to treat. Um, and so... So that was I, that was kind of the intro. Do you, so you want to you, do you want me to talk about like uh, my approach to treatment? Yes, uh, more please. specifically. There? Yes. Okay. So I, I'll just kind of fast forward to like what I do, and I, I collaborate with a number of physicians, um, many of whom. So I was I was a hospital doctor. I was an ICU doctor. I did have an outpatient practice, but it was focused largely on lung disease. Um, I haven't practiced general internal medicine in uh, probably fifteen years. But now I'm I'm really more of a general medical doctor. And so I've had to like sort of review and learn things. And I'm collaborating with doctors who've been treating complex chronic illnesses for decades. And I'm learning a lot from them. Um, so I'm almost like in a second education phase of my career. Um, and basically upon uh, not only clinical experiences, but knowledge of all these mechanisms and processes, my general approach to both syndromes um, actually, before maybe I, I, I talk about the approach, can I just describe the syndromes a little bit and how I define them? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So when I see a patient who comes to me with persistent symptoms um, after one of those two events, right, could be from COVID um, or from the vaccine, generally my diagnosis is based on finding a constellation of symptoms that develop in temporal association to one of those events. And temporal meaning, you know, associated by time. And I would say in both syndromes, I see kind of three cohorts of patients. I've, I've, so, for instance, if you take the vaccine, I have some patients whose symptoms began within seconds to minutes of the vaccine and persist. And it can persist for a long time. Many of my patients are seeing me after being sick for a year. I have another cohort where they might have a little bit of a rough time or really no problem with the vaccine or, you know, maybe a sore arm, a little fever, a little flu-like illness, they get better. And then over days to the next weeks, they suddenly develop this bizarre constellation of symptoms. And then a third cohort, it may be weeks to months later. Um, generally, most people develop symptoms within three months. I have a couple of outliers where they were really well for a long period, but they did, did develop much more of a classic syndrome even later. So I have a couple of outliers there, but that's generally the temporal association. And that also applies to long haul. You know, like I have some people who like I call them, you know, do not pass go. They went from acute COVID into long haul. Most people actually recover from acute COVID to a significant extent and then develop these constellation of symptoms. So what, do, what are those constellation of symptoms? So I sort of talk about the three cardinal symptoms, and then there's a whole ancillary adjunctive set. But the three most common that I see in almost everyone who presents, 
The big three are number one, fatigue, some amount of fatigue, just loss of energy. And it's generally combined with something we call post-exertional malaise, meaning when they try to exert themselves, they try to do their former level of activity, um, their symptoms completely flare and get worse. So for instance, I saw someone yesterday, a young woman who went out with her boyfriend. She's been sick for a year. She went out with her boyfriend on New Year's Eve just for two hours. They had a nice evening, um, but she was in bed the entire day the next day from just a, a pleasant kind of outing with her boyfriend for two hours. Um, and I see that over and over again. So you see fatigue, post-exertional malaise. And then the third uh, most common is some sort of neurological deficit. We kind of use this term brain fog, which I kind of subtype into either memory deficits, processing deficits, um, concentration deficits, um, word finding difficulties, but they all feel off. They don't feel like their brain is anywhere near to what they've normally uh, enjoyed as a cognitive performance. So those are the big three. And then those ancillary ones that I see, I see a lot of what a condition called POTS, which is postural orthost orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which, which is also known as autonomic dysfunction. So that part of the nervous system which controls our heart rate and our blood pressure is dysfunctional. And so you have these patients with these high resting heart rates. They try to walk across the room. Their heart rate goes to 150 or 160. So they can't really do much. They feel very uncomfortable or they stand up from a chair. They get really lightheaded. And then in the vaccine injured, a whole plethora of what I call neuropathic symptoms, um, you know, all forms of neuropathy. Most common is what's called a small fiber neuropathy. And these are the tiny nerve endings like in our skin and our tissues and even around our vessels, um, which mediate things like pain, heat, um, you know, cold, vibration. And so my patients all have just the most strange descriptions, like so many of them have difficult articulating the, the sensations that they're subjected to. So electric shock-like feelings, vibrations, burning, tingling, numbness. Um, and so, and, and for many, it's not only distressing, but disabling. And so I see a lot of neuropathic symptoms. I also see motor neuropathy. So uh, weaknesses, slurred speech, um, um, even ALS type syndromes. Um, I even see even some of the cognitive dysfunction, I have some patients which are actually are progressive, and those are the scariest because it almost prevent, presents like a dementia. Um, but that's kind of like an overview of what I see. I also see temperature dysregulation um, problems, but um, that's kind of the main things that I'm battling uh, as far as the control of their symptoms. And so how do I approach treatment? Well, I'll just kind of briefly summarize, and this is, this is what I'm telling you how I approach this. This is after a year of being in practice, of constantly studying, collaborating, and evolving. But what I have found as the best first-line therapy for both conditions is uh, the combination of ivermectin and a medication called uh, naltrexone, but we use it at very low doses. So why do we use ivermectin in long haul? Um, two reasons. One is mechanistically, um, it does uh, um, repolarize the macrophages that are active. It has multiple anti-inflammatory properties, um, as well as low-dose naltrexone. They, they really mitigate the uh, production of cytokines, which potentiate inflammation. 
Um, ivermectin is a really strong antiviral. We know it's highly effective against SARS-CoV-2. It also tightly binds to SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, more so than most medicines. It's like in the top 10 most tightly binding uh, uh, compounds to the spike protein. So if there is viral persistence, which I'm not convinced that there still is in these patients, I actually think it's more immune dysregulation. Um, I do have colleagues who do believe it is viral persistence. Um, or if it's a vaccine injured, are they still producing spike? Is there spike circulating or in the tissues that ivermectin could bind to and then thus neutralize or mitigate further downstream effects? So on paper, it has numerous mechanisms and rationale to use. The other reason why I use it is because it works. Um, it was the first drug that I found worked. Um, the first patient I ever treated with a vaccine injury, I wasn't even in practice or even thinking about or treating it. It was actually a housekeeper of mine um, who was really ill after her vaccine. She had lots of pains and fevers and shoulder um, and headaches. And this had gone on for 10 days. She couldn't leave her house. Um, she finally struggled to come to work. And she and I talked and I just heard from a colleague the week before that he had success with a similar patient. And I gave her ivermectin. And the next time she saw me, she literally hugged me and squeezed me so hard because within a day or two, her symptoms had resolved. And I saw that process repeat. Now, I'm not saying it's a miracle drug because as I went into practice and started using that, I would say that in my experience, I would say uh, around 70 plus percent of my patients respond positively to ivermectin with these syndromes. However, those responses vary. Some are quite modest, some are quite large. In fact, I've had some patients who all they needed was ivermectin, but many actually need other trials of therapy. So ivermectin uh, not only mechanistically has a rationale for it, it has an unparalleled safety profile, but I have a lot of clinical experience. And so it's easy to start, it's well tolerated, um, and it has the highest hopes for, for bringing about a positive response. And what potency were you using it? Oh, great question. So, so had you asked me that a year ago, I said, I don't know, this is the dose I'm using. So when I started out, you know, 0 0.2 is kind of like the lowest kind of standard dose, 0 0.2, 0 0.2 milligrams per kilogram, right? That's kind of how we dose ivermectin. It's by weight. It's by total body weight. And, um, but we noticed that with successive variants in acute COVID, we had to use higher doses. And so we were using 0 0.4 and I just arbitrarily said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to choose a middle of the road dose. So I started out using 0 0.3 milligrams per kilo. So that's my starting dose of ivermectin. How much would that be as far as just a milligram per day? Oh, so um, I never think of that because I always calculate it. But for like, uh, uh, you know, a 120 pound person, um, that would be about 15 milligrams. Um, so, you know, um, you know, so I have patients, depending on their weight, I'm using anywhere from 15 a day to even 35 milligrams a day, depending on their weight. So. Now, on that issue of dosing, though, so early on, I was using 0 0.3, and with my first, like, few dozen patients, I was doing a little dose ranging. Like, I, I would try to go up a little bit on the dose just to see if it had more of a response, and I really didn't detect one early on. So I actually abandoned modulating that dose. It just kind of became my standard dose, but I would tell you about five months ago, I had an experience, I had a couple experiences where patients 
when they took higher doses, they reported significantly improved uh, symptom control. And so now what I do is on my first visit with everyone, I start them on 0.3. And then in my first follow-up, if they are an ivermectin responder, I do a trial of double dose. I say, two, say take two capsules a day for 10 days and then feed back to me. What I found is about, I would say, 50 to 60% will write me back or we'll have another visit and they will say, wow, that higher dose really helped. The other 40%, they're like, doc, it didn't make a difference at the higher dose. So I'll bring them back down to the lower dose. So, so it's not a simple answer. I mean, I start everyone at 0.3. And by the way, that's a daily dose. And they take this as a maintenance dose. I mean, this is a mainstay of my therapy. It's a foundation to my protocol. Almost all of my patients are in ivermectin. The, the, those that are non-responders, I will remove. You know, if something doesn't work, I'm, you know, uh, the other thing that I want to tell you about my treatment, Gary, is because there's no protocols, there's no therapeutic trials for any of these conditions, um, you know, I have to, and, and there's also no good biomarkers or lab testing to tell me which one of those mechanisms that I outlined is the main contributing one. And how complex this disease is, I cannot even describe because... In some of my patients, I actually think it's one predominant mechanism. It's like, so some it might be just microclotting, some it might be mast cell activation. But in many, it's numerous. And which is the prevailing one is really hard. You, you can't really differentiate out through symptom pattern or blood testing. So my approach is I do empiric trials of therapy. Every patient serves as their own control. So when I start them, and I, and I separate all trials of therapy by time. So I'll start someone on, let's say, one or two medicines. And then when I see them on follow-up, I ask them when they first noted responses, what kind of responses they noted, so I can detect which medicine had that effect. I try never to start more than two medicines at a time. And like I said, based on the response, if something's not working, I'll abandon it and we'll try something else. But I kind of go through trials going after those different mechanisms. And so sometimes in some patients, it takes a number of trials before we have like a significant impact. And I have to say, it's very humbling. Um, I wish I had more research to support uh, what I do, uh, much more guidance, much more collaboration. But um, like you mentioned, I mean, this thing of vaccine injury, it's, it's, it's a society-wide um, suppression and censorship that it's a true disease. The, the actual scope and scale of vaccine injury in this country um, is so immense. It's, it's shocking to me that the information control, the way it's been, how effective it has been, to, to really leave most of the population in ignorance to how prevalent and how severe these syndromes are. Um, so, uh, so is that fair kind of, it's an empiric approach. Um, I use uh, clinical reason, clinical experience, uh, basic science mechanisms um, in order to choose my therapies and I do trials. So, so I started with ivermectin. Low-dose naltrexone also has a number of immunomodulatory and anti-inflammatory um, uh, impacts. Um, Naltrexone kind of freaks everyone out because it's mostly known as Narcan, right, which is the drug that you use to reverse drug overdoses. But that's at a dose of 50 to 100 or 300 milligrams. What's fascinating about naltrexone is when you use it at low doses, we're talking about one, two, three, four milligrams, 
It's a completely different drug. It has minimal anti-opiate effects, and it has profound uh, anti-inflammatory and immunomodulatory effects. In fact, I find that's one of the most effective things for a lot of that small fiber neuropathy symptoms that my patients get. Uh, many of them, their symptoms are relieved with low-dose naltrexone. Um, and so, so those are kind of the, uh, the two first approaches that I do. And then, you know, uh, I'll just briefly summarize. In some, I might address uh, empirically microclotting, which is very complex, but I'm finding tremendous results with different forms of either anticoagulation or using natural fibrinolytic enzymes. Um, we, we find profound responses there. Sometimes I focus on uh, mast cell activation, which is really, you know, blocking uh, histamine effects. So you use like H1 and H2 blockers, which are like antihistamines and antacids like famotidine or pepsid. Um, and so, you know, I use those approaches. Sometimes I, I use, and then now I'm starting to use uh, as almost like a third line, only because it's a... I kind of like to do medication trials first, but now I'm using more broad systemic uh, multi-mechanistic therapies, things like, um, and by the way, I have to laugh here because the next three things I'm going to say that are like integral to my practice, had you told me three years ago that I would have a practice using these therapies, I would, I would have laughed at you. But this is, again, one of the transformations I referred to earlier. When you look at the science and the decades of experience with some of these therapies, like hyperbaric oxygen therapy, near-infrared light therapy, low-dose methylene blue therapy, um, I mean, it's profound its effects, its safety, um, and its decades of use. And, you know, those three things in, in the, the, when I say multi-mechanistic, they actually support mitochondrial function, which is critical in these syndromes. They are potent uh, anti-inflammatories, immunomodulatories, which is they actually help re-regulate the immune system and potentiate the immune system in positive ways. And so... Um, you know, some of my patients, I, I sort of use those broadly. Now, the problem with those, especially hyperbaric, is cost and access is a problem. And I will also tell you that the efficacy of hyperbaric in a lot of these patients uh, is becoming more widely known. I mean, it's kind of hard to get into these centers. Um, so now I have some of my patients who can afford it. They're, you know, renting low pressure chambers for the home and whatnot. So, I, I mean, I could probably... You know, I have lots of other little tricks. I use kind of some high-dose fish oils, and I use some, some really interesting um, medicines that you would never think of. Like I've had a lot of efficacy with one of this new class of migraine medicines, and I don't use it for headache. It actually treats a lot of the neurologic symptoms. It's called Ubrelvi, um, which is a, what's called a CGRP inhibitor. I've used... Um, uh, I've started to use this uh, anti-nausea drug, which is uh, for patients with post-chemo nausea, which is a substance P inhibitor. And that has, it seemingly has many positive effects in these multi-mechanistic syndromes. And so I'm learning as I go. I'm learning new tricks. I'm trialing things. But I mean, I kind of have a, my standard approach, but as the science evolves and I'm learning from others and my own experience, and as well as my partner, um, we're constantly sharing experiences and we're, we kind of figure out how to treat. Now, I will tell you though, I, I most challenge, I, I do have some patients where I've, I've had, I, I will have to admit, I've had very little success in helping them. Um, the vast majority I've helped, but th there are a few that are pro proving, um, I, I hate to say refractory, but boy, have I been trying and it's very hell, it, very hard to relieve their suffering. It's, it's a, a very humbling disease. Have you used hydroxychloroquine? You know, I have. So, 
So here's here's my challenge um, with uh, with how I'm practicing medicine in this area. There are far too many medicines with positive mechanisms that can work. You can't practice, you know, going to work each day, choosing from a list of 60 medicines that work. Now, this isn't about hydroxychloroquine. I'm just saying that, like, I have to have some sort of standard part. And then in some patients, as I learn new things, I'll try new things. Now, hydroxychloroquine, in the beginning of my practice, I used it uh, much more in a protocolized fashion, much more regularly. And this is how I summarize it, is the medicines that I keep are those with high batting averages, meaning they have high frequencies of inducing a positive clinical response. I have other medicines which have what are called high slugging averages. So if your listeners don't know what those are, those are baseball terms, but a slugging average is where where you may not get on base a lot, but when you get on base, you kind of hit a home run, right? So like I have some medicines where I'll try them in patients and like most patients don't respond except one or two, I'll find a dramatic response. And hydroxychloroquine in this um, syndrome, in my experience, I'm not saying that I'm, I'm right on this because I probably may not, may not have used it enough before kind of putting it, relegating it to a, a, you know, a second and third line. But I didn't find it to have a high batting average, but I certainly had significant clinical experiences with some patients. Um, so I will trial that on, on some patients. It's not like one of my main ones, but uh, the reason why I talked about all of these, uh, there are so many compounds with favorable mechanisms that would have immense value in this. But like I said, I can't, I can't choose from 80. Like when I have an individual patient, even starting a patient on three medicines in one visit is asking a lot, right? And, and when I laugh is when I started out in practice, you know, I had all these collaborative meetings with a lot of these doctors who've been practicing complex chronic illness. And I kept learning about all these different supplements that showed, you know, a lot of promise. And I'm, I kind of laugh at what I was doing a year ago because I was literally putting patients on like six to seven supplements with two to three prescription medicines at a visit, which is completely departs from my normal practice in medicine throughout my career. I'm kind of a minimalist. I kind of really targeted at what I think is the main issue. And I will say over that past year, I've really evolved. I don't do that anymore. I, I don't throw, you know, I wouldn't say throw, but I, I, I don't use so many different supplements, compounds at one time. I, I kind of, I'm a little bit more measured and more focused in, in my therapies. Um, and that's just an outgrowth of how I practice medicine. Because I'll tell you, I, I appreciate that. There's a lot of variability in the practice of medicine based on either comfort levels, risk tolerance, um, uh, experience, knowledge, and you know, my practice is my practice. I'm not saying it's the best. It's just it's just what I've intuitively, naturally become comfortable doing. You're one of those individuals now who are in the front line, and highly respected because of the sacrifice you've made. You and the others have made Dr. Cole and Dr. McCullough and, and uh, Dr. Merrick, all of whom have suffered, but they still get back up and bring us the truth. And for that, we are grateful. Thank you very much for being with us. Thanks, Gary. I appreciate it.